Happy February 7th, 2020. Happy Black History Month, everybody. Uh, happy Lovers Month. It's uh, it's great. We're off to rock and roll in February. And uh, my, of course, my young producer, my young millennial, my darling Jason Y., has laryngitis and no voice, but he is in studio, so I feel like I'm doing my show with Harpo Marx today. And if you don't know who Harpo Marx is, that probably means you're under 40. But uh, I've got my... And, and I'll be here all week. But he's got control of the board, so who knows what he'll be playing for us. Anyway, we got a great lineup for you all today. Let me tell you what we're doing. We're starting out with Thomas Davis, uh, African-American male, uh, openly gay, worked for the Black AIDS Institute for a while. And we're going to talk a bit about what it means to be black and gay in America in 2020, where we've been, where we're going. Uh, and then after that, we're going to uh, have a call-in from Michael Griffiths, who is an incredible Australian singer, and he's got some upcoming shows. He's paying tribute to Madonna. Yes, that Madonna. My Madonna. Yeah. And Cole Porter. He's got back-to-back shows coming up. And so we'll talk a little bit about his tributes to Madonna and Cole Porter. And then uh, returning guest, Betsy Butler, former California State Assemblywoman and uh, now the head of the Women's Law Center, talking about women in politics and what's happening nationally, locally, uh, and the women's current state of the women's movement. And then she'll be sticking with me all the way to the top of the hour when we'll have my old pal Jarrett Hill pop in. Another voice for Black History Month. And we'll be having African-American voices popping in throughout the entire month. So that is our lineup for the day. Uh, But uh, if you haven't been uh, paying attention to politics, if you've been living under a rock, then you probably haven't seen the last uh, 48 hours in the incredible news cycle that we're in. Because it appears that Pete Buttigieg has won the Iowa caucus. Um, I am old enough to know and remember that I never, ever, ever thought I would see the day when an openly LGBT person would be running for president of the United States, but it's happening. And not only is it happening, he won the Iowa caucuses by a sliver, by a sliver over Bernie Sanders, but by a sliver, he did win the Iowa caucuses. And now they're off to New Hampshire, and it appears that Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg are again running uh, neck in neck uh, for the New Hampshire primary, and then off to uh, South Carolina and Nevada. So how exciting is it uh, that we are in the midst of a battle for the Democratic nominee? And um, we've got so many good choices, gang. My my candidate was Kamala Harris, uh, the U.S. Senator from California, known her since she was the San Francisco DA. I thought she would have made a great president. Uh, she she jumped out of the race, and um, I have not yet committed to anyone. Yeah, I love Pete Buttigieg, but, you know, I know Joe Biden from the days when he was Barack Obama's vice president, and I was very tight with that campaign when that happened many years ago. And uh, I got to tell you, I'm just – Michael Bloomberg is a, is a possibility, and yes, I like Elizabeth, and so I'm – and Bernie, and it's like, oh, they're all any, – anybody – But the orange pumpkin, guys, anybody I'm okay with, and I hope you are too, because watching the the, uh, complainer in chief, you know, he, he, he got acquitted by the U.S. Senate. And by the way, kudos to Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney has gone up 
mega points in my book. I don't agree with him on a lot, but man, he's got spine, he's got courage and backbone. But, um, you know, when Bill Clinton got impeached and acquitted, he issued an apology to the American people for putting us all through the impeachment. He took responsibility for his actions. He said he was sorry, expressed remorse, and allowed the country to heal and move forward. Not this guy, not 45. He, uh, you know, he apologized for, to his family, that his family went through it, completely not even thinking that maybe the other 250 million of us that call this place home might have been going through some turmoil over the past months about his corrupt scheme and his trying to uh, use Ukraine for political leverage for his reelect and trying to throw the Bidens under the bus and, and trying to cover it up and obstructing Congress and all those things that he did. Uh, you think he would have issued an apology to the American people as well. Uh, but uh, no, we didn't get an apology from the uh, commander in chief. We didn't get anything other than Democrats are evil and sick and so on and so on. So we'll be talking about that uh, throughout the course of the day with my various guests as they pop in and out. But uh, we first need to welcome my first guest, uh, who's just walked into studio, and uh, our first guest is uh, Thomas Davis. So you know who that is, Thomas. Change is going to come by... You, it's okay. Oh, I've heard it. Baby, you're a millennial. It. I know it. I know. I know. I, you get me. I don't know everything when it comes it's to Sam Cooke. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay, okay. I've heard it, though. I've heard it, though. He was around before I, even I was around, but okay, it's still a beautiful okay. song. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Really I, happy to be here. I know here. you were here before when you accompanied the new executive director of the Black AIDS Institute, right? Mm-hmm. Rania, yes. Rania, yes, Rania yeah, Rania yeah. That, about, uh, I don't know, seven, eight months ago or so. Mm-hmm, something like that. Something yeah. Like that, yeah. But I'm so glad you're here because I'm going to have various African-American voices throughout the month. I'm Black History Month, but Amazing. you're the first. Awesome. I'm honored to be here. I'm honored to be here. So, now, you were born and raised in Los Angeles? Um, no, I actually was born in Texas originally, but um, I grew up in Colorado, and then I moved out here in 2010, and have been here ever since, so this is home. So where in, where in Texas were you born? Uh, Georgetown. It's real real small town. Small town? Like central. Yeah. Central Texas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then moved to what part of Colorado? Uh, it's a, another small town town called Estes Park. It's actually where The Shining takes place. So it's, you know, it's interesting. <laughs> one of my favorite movies. <laughs> now, I mean, growing up, were you one of the few black kids in town or school? Mm-hmm. Or? Yeah, so um, my school had about maybe 500 kids in it, tops. And um, in my grade, I was the only uh, I was the only black student that we had. Um, my brother uh, was also black, but he was in the grade below me. So in total, in the whole school, we had about four, you know, that were uh, African-American or black Wow, that, yeah. I mean, compared to Los Angeles, that's uh, completely upside down. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I always said that, like, coming out here was, like, the uh, the best uh, culture shock I ever got. <laughs> so it was cool. And then I'm guessing, being the only black, one of four black kids in high school, you were probably the only gay. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. definitely. I mean, I came out when I was a freshman, so, yeah, it was, that's kind of just how it was. I was the, the black gay kid. <laughs> wow. All right, coming up next, gang, we'll be talking more to Thomas Davis about what it was like growing up as the only black kid in Colorado small town. (laughs) Thanks for tuning in here on Channel Q.
Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast i know you have no idea who that is right nina Thomas? Simone, <laughs> oh you do of course oh, of course yes nina, i love yes. nina i love <laughs> nina I am so happy that you knew that because often young people, millennials don't, but obviously African-American millennial, mm. you knew exactly yeah, who that yeah, was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know who she is, of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah. She's eternal. She's mm-hmm. eternal. She was all about race and racism and brought her voice to that mm-hmm. conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, okay, so you're in a small town. Yes. You're like one of four black kids in the high school. Mm-hmm. You're the only openly, well, you weren't probably openly gay, were I was, you? I was, I was. You were yeah. openly gay? I came out when I was In a small town 15. in Colorado? Yep. two weeks before I turned 16, I came out. Yeah. Okay. Wow. <laughs> so so, I was young. And and during the break, you and I were chatting, and you were uh, adopted. You were raised by two very white, conservative, Republican yes. parents. Yeah, yeah. So um, I have uh, my my parents that adopted me are both white, and then I had three older sisters that were white as well. Um, my brother he was adopted as well, but um, it was a year later. We're not uh, we're not related by DNA, so he was black as well. But um, yeah, so yeah, that's what I grew up with. They're very yeah, they're very they they are still uh, conservative. Right. Um, so. Yeah, it was uh, it was it was interesting. <laughs> so so how did so here we are. I'm trying to picture this. So here you are. You're in a small town. It's mostly white. You're in a mm-hmm. family that's mostly white. You're mm-hmm. in a state that's mostly white. Yes. And you're African American. How do you find or did you search for mm-hmm. attachments to your Afro culture? Or um, a yeah. hunger for it or anything? Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, when I was growing up, I mean, um, me being adopted was always something that we just talked openly about. Um, we always knew, you know, it was just it was just what always was. Um, so for me. 
I mean, I I always was the one that just kind of stuck out. So I got used to kind of being a loner and being, you know, the one that was different. So um, I never really looked into uh, my my culture, my roots as like uh, somebody that was bl- that somebody that is black. It wasn't really until I uh, got to really until I got to college when I had other you know peers that were black, that were Latino, that were from all over the world. But yeah, growing up, um, it wasn't something that I was told was that important. It was, you know, I just kind of was focused on getting through school and, you know, getting out of there so I could be somewhere more diverse. Hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And when, you, okay, for me, so when I went to college, Cal State Long Beach, I mean, I was raised in a community that was all Latino and Jewish. That was the only type of kids on the block, Latino <laughs> and Jewish, East LA. Yeah. I had never seen a black person until my first day of college. Wow. Other than on television. That's crazy. Is, is that crazy? Mm-hmm. But in my entire neighborhood, it was just not something common, not in church, mm-hmm. not in school, not on the street. Mm-hmm. And I went to Cal State Long Beach and I was like, oh, African-American people, black yeah, people. Yeah. But I had never seen that until I went to uh-huh. college. And then that kind of opened up all sorts of questions and worlds for me. Yeah. Like you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's um, it's really interesting, too. When I talked to my sister um, when she was growing up, I remember she describes um, watching this, uh, what was it? It was like this uh, jewelry uh, ad like for like Jared or something like that. I don't know. It was in the 90s. And I remember she saw it was uh, this interracial couple. It was a black man and a white woman. And they like, you know, kissed on it. And it was this whole thing where she like asked my sister like oh like does that happen and it was really interesting to see like you know when people grow up you know you grow up in these uh, kind of isolated bubbles and then when you get out and you see something it's like oh like you know it, it really kind of pulled into focus for me that I was like wow like we know we're you know my sister is like maybe like eight years older than me and this still was a new experience for her it kind of showed me that we're not as far you know removed from um, you know segregation and all of that as much as we think we are so you you know, it's like that was like when my grandparents were like my age, you know, so it's when I think about that, it's like, wow, OK, like that wasn't that long ago. Yeah. <laughs> so here it is. It's 2020. How old are you? 27. All right. 27. It's 2020. Uh, wow. That's wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're, yeah, you're young. Right. You're like Jason. Jason's young too. All right, good. Do you do you ever get a sense of racism walking around? <laughs> yes. Of- yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, definitely. How does that look? Um, you know, for me, um, when I first uh, got out here, I remember the first um, the first time I ever like blatantly like really experienced racism was when I was walking back from my musical theater class, and it was me and um, you know the other students in my class were black, and I remember we were walking and there was this um there was this guy that was across the street and he was just yelling and you know i think he was experiencing homelessness so at first i wasn't really listening and then you know i heard him screaming you know the n-word and i was like who's he talking to and, he, and i look across the street and he's like looking at me and he's pointing at me and like my friends they and they just start going off and i remember i was like wait like He's talking. He's talking to me. Like it was. It was crazy. <laughs> it was shocking. Yeah, yeah it yeah. was crazy. I remember that was my first experience, like experiencing it like that blatant and loud. Um, but then I think after that, and you know, once I graduated from college and started to get more into my line of work and like public health and everything, it was starting to realize like, oh, like realizing what and learning what microaggressions were, and really realizing that I, you know, am surrounded by that pretty much every single day as a as a black man, and and you know, coming to terms with that and. Um, 
um, yeah, it was it was a lot. It was a lot, you know, um, and it kind of had me questioning a lot of things from you know how I grew up. You know, I was looking at a lot of things like when I was growing up, and people would be talking about you know how they they just loved that you know I was you know that I was a black kid, but you know I wasn't like black, and it was like you know what like, does that mean? Yeah, no, it was exactly, <laughs> and it was so weird. Like when I was growing up, I had no idea what that was, and I think you know, and I felt like oh, like you know, they're accepting me, and then growing up and looking back and realizing oh, like that was actually really messed up Mm. Um, so you know I think that's been a lot of my journey really you know kind of making peace with how you know I grow up and not um, not holding on to a lot of the anger and resentment that comes with it but you know just kind of realizing like okay like that's what it was and you know I was able I've I've been able to look back on those experiences and and have it inform you know where I go now but yeah it's it's been it's a layered you know I I played Nina Simone for you Nina Simone was around in the 50s and 60s and Mm -hmm. most people wouldn't know her Mm -hmm. you know you yeah. knew her. You were born in 93. Two. 92. 92. Yes. 92. Uh, how did you, and I imagine Nina Simone was not introduced to you mm-hmm. in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you? You know, I was so lucky that I had a choir director um, that he, he he really made sure that the types of music that we would sing and that we would bring into, you know, was, um, was very diverse and was from different cultures. So, um, yeah, that's actually how I learned about Nina um, was through... Um, um, a song that one of her songs that we sang that wasn't as well known I can't remember it but after that it was really just like you know with a lot of the um, choreographers that I would work with I would work with a lot of like I worked with a lot of black choreographers um, you know in school I had a lot of black teachers but even after when I graduated working with uh, Lula Washington mm-hmm. in South LA you know um, that's that's how I learned about a lot of stuff not just not just with Nina but you know with um, with other with other you know black musicians and just black art in general so mm-hmm. Yeah, it was uh, for me a lot. Like most of what I've learned about, you know, my culture and my roots has been through the arts. Mm. That's interesting. So mm-hmm. there, therefore, a black artist that you look up to as a mentor and inspiration, mm-hmm. or somebody in music, or mm-hmm. is it? Because I mean, we have Af- African American people prominent, obviously, in uh, athletics, and obviously mm-hmm. in the arts, and in mm-hmm. Hollywood, and in music, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, uh, poetry. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, authors. Is there mm-hmm. somebody that? Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, of course, Alvin Ailey. Uh, when it comes to dance, has been always um, is is a huge uh, inspiration to me you know um, he died from age related complications as well so being somebody openly living with HIV like he just kind of hits hits all points for me and just mm. you know his his ability to um, his ability and his choreography to tell a story that still preserves like the history of black Americans and African Americans has just been something that I think has inspired me the most and mm. just you know as a choreographer and a dancer that's something that I always try to take with me you know that um, you know his ability to use storytelling and an art form at the same time to, you know, preserve his culture. Hmm. So he's a huge inspiration, for sure. I love uh, Toni Morrison, of course, inspires the heck out of me because she's so smart. Um, But uh, so we lost so many uh, African-Americans in the arts in the AIDS Mm -hmm. epidemic. Mm -hmm. I mean, so many. Yes, yeah, Uh, absolutely. I mean, Sylvester, I love, so I used to see Sylvester at Studio Uh, One in the 70s, way back when. Yeah, Sylvester, uh, Joseph Beam, you know, is an amazing poet and writer, you know, like, yeah, lots of of really amazing artists. So so we've got like less than a minute. Mm -hmm. So if there's some... Small town kid mm-hmm. out there listening online, which happens a lot here at Channel Q, who's African American and maybe mm-hmm. gay or lesbian or trans. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
you have any words to impart? Stay focused. Just stay focused. Um, you know, I think a lot of times, you know, when I, if I could have said something back to myself, um, it would be like, you know, this isn't you. You you didn't put yourself in this situation, and it's not to say whether it's good or it's bad. It is what it is. And if you stay focused on the things that you want to do and you want to accomplish, like that's that's the most important thing, you know. And just making sure you stay true to yourself and you know keep your eyes on the prize with that. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Keep yeah. your eyes on the prize. Yeah. Thomas Davis, thanks for coming by. Nice seeing you again. I'm so glad you made it in studio. Of course, me too, me too. (laughs) Gang, when we come back, uh, uh, coming up next, we'll have uh, Michael Griffiths. Uh, We'll be talking about his tribute to Madonna and Cole Porter here on Channel Q. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Gang, that is the incredible, beautiful voice of Michael Griffiths uh, singing uh, one of his tribute songs to Madonna. Michael, welcome to the show. John, good to be here. How you doing? Oh, so good. We really love the the YouTube videos you sent us. I mean, your voice is amazing, mate. Thank you. That's very kind. (laughs) So you're Australian. By the way, we've had a whole host of Australians coming on in the past couple of months talking about the wildfires and the terrible devastation. I mean, have you been back home since it happened? I've just come straight from Australia. I've only landed in the States uh, two days ago. And um, my folks have a beach house. Um, that they've kind of retired to on the York Peninsula, south of Adelaide, and they were evacuated um, in December, and the fire came right to the edge of their town. So certainly there was a day where it, you know, directly touched me, but otherwise, I mean, I've been to Sydney, and it's smoky, and, yeah, the whole country is really feeling it. It's been a rough summer, start to the summer. Our hearts go out to people in Australia. I mean, I have so many Aussie friends, and I can't even imagine what's going on there. You're, you're in Las Vegas right now. You're doing a show there, right? That's where you're calling I'm, from? No, I came a few days there. My first time was in um, L.A. doing Madonna on Monday, but I wanted to come a few days early to get over jet lag. And I had a couple of Aussie mates here performing, and I'd never been. So I thought, oh, I'll pop over to Las Vegas and see some shows. And, um, <laughs> that is and, you know, awesome. Get acclimatized before my first show on Monday. Stay away so from those uh, craps tables. I lose my shirt every time. <laughs> I haven't spent a dime yet. on. I haven't gambled a dollar yet. I may, but I'm not gambling's not really my thing. I'm more here to see shows <laughs> that, um, that makes me a massive homo but yeah I'm here to see some shows <laughs> I, I completely get that's exactly what I think most LGBT people do we're there for the shows yeah exactly. absolutely yeah, yeah, I'm seeing Dion work tonight that's how <laughs> I you've got it's some shows them. coming up in Los Angeles at the Catalina Jazz Club yes yes I do I have a couple a week apart um, I was there three years ago I did one night 
And I remember it vividly because they had this beautiful gold mic, gold-plated microphone. I've never seen anything like it at their piano. And it was a, yeah, such a beautiful room. So I'm yeah, very excited to be back and the familiar surroundings. Why? I mean, I you know I can think of a, a hundred reasons why Madonna or a hundred reasons Cole Porter. But I'm curious mm. to hear what are your reasons for doing tributes to each of them? Uh, oh, look, Madonna I've been doing since 2011. So next year is its 10th anniversary. And it was at the um, suggestion of a really dear friend of mine who's a writer. And he'd written a few tribute shows for other performers. And I was in Jersey Boys at the time, and he was my gym buddy. So we'd get together each week. And one week he said, Michael, we should do a show together. What should we do it about? And he'd written a, a show about Britney Spears for a female Australian. who's just done it all over the place. And I thought, oh, look... I mean, I grew up, I'm 45 this year, and so Madonna has been just part of the fabric of my life since, in sort of some of my earliest pop memories. And I think she's a fantastic songwriter, and I, that was the way, you know, I said, let's do a show about Madonna and let's concentrate on her skills as a songwriter. But, I mean, you know, we're both um, gays in our 40s and we like a giggle, so there's lots of sort of bitchy humour, but essentially it's about celebrating a great bunch of songs. And and she's had so many. I mean, I, Lucky Star, I think, was the first song I remember, like 1980. Yeah, you were, let me think, were you even around? <laughs> you were... Absolutely. One of my first me- pop memories is Holiday. Of course. The Italian girls had it on a cassette, and they used to bring in their kind of little mini ghetto blaster and play Holiday at recess, and we'd all dance in our you know, neon socks and... Um, stonewashed jeans in 1983-84 um, and I was what 10 years old I mean I was born in 74 so yeah I was around and I, Holidays that was my first Madonna song mm. and then ever since then you know just sort of followed look I didn't become a real fan until oh maybe Vogue when Vogue came out I'm like oh wow this is awesome and I'm now a fan but until then she was just there but I my sister liked Madonna, so I liked other things. But then after Vogue, I was like, oh, okay, you've won me now. You've got me. <laughs> <laughs> and then that was it. And then I've just, you know, I've devoured everything ever since. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of LGBT people idolize her. And it's not just for her artistry, because she's got a beautiful voice, and she can dance a storm, and mm. she's beautiful to watch, and her shows are on video. But she's kind of a, a defiant, you know, uh, to anything that looks institutional. <laughs> I mean, she defies. Absolutely. Church, state, government. She's on her on her own and independent. Absolutely, yeah. She's a rebel and a trailblazer, and um, and and no understands the power of imagery too. Like, and I think that's a lot of the appeal. There's just it's just always such strong, bold imagery and fashion and makeup. But yeah, she knows the power. Of, well, pop music's not just about the tunes. I mean, it is. It's about the tunes, and then it's about kind of imagery. And she's nailed, always nailed both of them. Always been very bold with both of those things. So does that say something about Michael Griffiths that you would choose to then do a tribute um, to her music? Oh, look, funnily enough, after talking about strong injury, I don't dress up as her and I don't impersonate her and I, I don't do anything to make myself look like her or represent any of the imagery. It's, it's strictly the music. And um, so I'm a pianist and I'm a composer and sort of had fun reinventing her songs for a sort of, you know, solo piano setting. And then there's, because there's so many tunes, it's kind of the luxury of choice. My writer and I have kind of made, you know, a few medleys and we've smashed songs with each other. And um, you're in a lovely position with Madonna where you've got decades of material and, you know, bags of hits. I mean, so many that 
we couldn't fit them all in. But we have fun with our favourites, and it's very nostalgic. It's a lot of the early stuff because that's when we were young, and that's the sort of music that's transportative because it takes you to the eighties and to the nineties and the early noughties, which even the noughties are twenty years ago now. Isn't that mad? <laughs> that's crazy. That is crazy. Yeah, a song from two thousand is you know nostalgic and vintage. <laughs> transportative. But yeah, we favor the stuff that takes us back to our youth. I think that's very, very true. So I, I imagine you probably took Isla Bonita and made that into a, a torch song, yes? You know what? I adore that song and that album. But again, when I talk about luxury choice and not having them all in, that one's not in there. My, partly because as an Australian, my Spanish isn't very good. Like I, I stumble across, I even just saying Lies La Bonita, I feel like a bit of a, you know, a sham thing. So that one's not in, but um, certainly there are other songs on that album. There's about two or three on like from Like a Prayer. Mm. Um, but not that one. Oh, no, that one's True Blue. God, I'm showing up my... Yeah. That one's on True, True Blue. Oh, whoops. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I don't even remember it. I think I have every one of her albums. I, love I, her so I have every one on multiple, you know, formats, mainly CD now, but I had them on. I, I, the first seven-inch single I ever bought was Live to Tell. Actually, oh, so did I talk about Vogue being the one? Maybe Live to Tell was where she won me, but I think I bought that in secret, whereas by Vogue, I was out and proud. Hmm. about my fandom but yeah i had her on lp cassette and then uh, cd yeah and hmm. my other I, I don't know if you do it but ray of light i just think is spectacular oh spectacular. yeah 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 i do do ray of light and it is spectacular and what a wonderful album and um yeah just, right i'm going electronica let's do this yeah, that is awesome <laughs> yeah, uh, michael we gotta take a, a short break will you stick around for a bit Absolutely. All right. right. Coming up next, gang, we'll be talking to Michael Griffiths some more about his upcoming shows. And now we'll spend some time talking about his other uh, tribute, Cole Porter, and the music of Cole Porter here on Channel Q. Odyssey is giving you a chance to win a trip to London to see Taylor Swift at the Eras Tour. It's Tay in the UK. Hey, it's Taylor. Just download the free Odyssey app, log in and listen to a participating station for a minimum of 60 minutes to get your daily entry. And you could win a chance to fly off to London with three friends and see Taylor. I can't wait to see you at the Eras Tour in London. For more, go to odyssey.com slash Taylor. Tay in the UK. It's on the Odyssey app. Thanks to Republic Records. This is a national contest. The uh, incredible voice of Michael Griffith singing Cole Porter's Night and Day. Welcome back, Michael. Glad to have you on the show. Hey, John. Good to be here. So, Cole Porter, I mean, I, I kind of know enough about Cole Porter to be dangerous to myself, but mm. I, I love him. I love him. He was a, a gay man uh, who mm. married a woman at a time when it was not convenient to be gay, but he, he married a woman, and she never really frowned upon his homosexuality. In fact, some of their parties were known for the sex and the drugs and the party and the sounds and the music, and they were quite the hit in the roaring 20s 100 years ago. Yeah, they were super modern. And I actually, what I've learned doing this show, and I'm embarrassed to admit I knew almost nothing about Cole Porter. Um, this show, again, was kind of at a suggestion, although um, entirely different writer. And she said, Michael, you should sing Cole Porter songs that suit you, and I'll write you a show. I was like, okay. Um, I knew Night and Day and Anything Goes, and that was about it. Um, and, yes, I, I, it's, it's extraordinary, um, his story and his privilege and his situation. But I think Kim and Linda were actually kind of best mates. And, yes, he was gay. And she'd had an, uh, a fairly rocky marriage before um, Cole. And I think she was sort of just 
grateful to be with, you know, a kind man who, you know, looked after her. But I mean, I think it was fairly sexless and certainly he was gay and, uh, you know, um, had these outrageous parties in Hollywood, men only and film stars and army, you know, soldiers would go along and Linda would just disappear for a few days. Yeah, isn't that great? His, his <laughs> wife, then, um, they, were, they both come from very wealthy families. Linda, I remember, was from Kentucky, and Cole's yeah. family was from Indiana, and they had this incredible yeah. wealth 100 yeah, years yeah. ago that even survived the, the Great Depression, and they they were known for these lavish, luxurious parties, kind of like a scene from Rosalind Russell's Auntie Mame, you know, there at, in New York City, the, the parties yeah. with the cross-dresses and the fantastic artists and the incredible people. That's the kind of parties they were known for. Do you know what yeah, Cole no. Porter's favorite song was? I do. I, I of his you, own? Of, of his own, yeah. His favorite um, song. Love for Sale? Yes, you knew it. Hooray, Isn't I that, passed the You passed I mean, the Cole Porter, yes. <laughs> you'd hope that I would know that. I hope you say, know it. I learned a lot fast. I mean, I didn't know how to play or sing most of the songs, let alone his kind of life story. And I do do the show in character as if you're kind of spending a, an intimate you know, hour with him telling you just warts and like, you know, telling you everything, telling you all the good stuff. Yeah. Um, see, I learned a lot fast, but I did come across it and it stuck because what an extraordinary song. And, you know... And about a sex just, worker, about a street well, worker. Well, I know, but sympathetically too, like from the point of view and, from, you know, a likable real character back when, you know, you weren't allowed to sort of discuss those things, let alone make them sympathetic. Right. Um, but what an extraordinary and melancholy beautiful song and that's definitely in the show one of my favorites mm. yeah i love that that's his and you know what the fact of queen elizabeth's the reigning queen of england what her favorite song of all time and all composer is no and it, it's Cole Porter, and it's uh, Miss Otis Regrets. Oh, Miss Otis song. Regrets. We're about a mobster killing uh, a, a woman. <laughs> well, about, yes, a society lady who yes. kind of yeah, gets in with the wrong crowd. And I love that. I think that's rather telling. But yes, that's a society lady that gets up to no good. <laughs> what the song's about. And it's her demise. You know, another, but, um, a person that he made big on Broadway was Ethel Merman. He gave oh, Ethel cool. Merman her voice. Yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, hmm. with uh, with all the music around, I mean, ain't, uh, not Ain't Misbehaving. Uh, well, Kiss Me Kate, of course, was uh, the big show that he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, all all the music, I get a kick out of you. Um, yeah. Just one of those things. It's the lovely. Yeah. Uh, hmm. I, I lo- all these songs, they're so, the, the beat and the rhythm and the the meter is incredible. It's poetry. It's incredible poetry. It is poetry. poetry. And musically, too, it's equally musically and lyrically sophisticated they're so dense and clever and you know and and i mean before he became the kind of the toast of broadway he was actually for a little early period he was sort of destined to be a serious classical composer and he was sort of groomed by i mean i'll look a famous contemporary composer of the time and i forget it was someone like it wasn't Ravel, but it was someone like oh it's stravinsky Mm. I think, sort of took him on when he was young. And so, yeah, that was the way he was going. And then he kind of fell in love with popular... Well, he's, he'd always written popular songs. He'd done them at university. But that sort of suddenly became, you know, the path he took. But um, he had that strong musical, you know, sensibility. And so they're, yeah, they're so sophisticated. It's the hardest thing I've ever done is learning these songs. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I come from a classical piano background too and, and a musical theatre background. So it kind of has pushed me to my absolute limit to do justice to them but they deserve you know everything they deserve your hardest work because they're 
you know, they're, they're works of um, genius, all of them. Do, do you sing Anything Goes? I mean, the, the lyrics in Anything Goes. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, that, yeah, yeah, that alone. Opening number. <laughs> that was always going to be the opening number. Open with that and close with Night and Day with um, Every Time We Say Goodbye as an encore. They were like mm. the first songs to land, mm. you know, structure the show. But yeah, Anything Goes is just, um, I mean, it's perfect. And everyone loves it and knows it. And it's perfect kind of. Um, oh, it's a perfect song in because the, the very first lyric of the verse is times have changed. I thought mm-hmm. that's the perfect thing to start with a Cole Porter show singing <laughs> that in 2020. Times <laughs> you know, have changed. It, it, it makes it immediate. It's like they certainly have and they and they will continue to. Yeah, times have changed. And we've often rewound the clock. <laughs> it's uh, the perfect way in. When they landed on Plymouth Rock. Look, I'm remembering my lyrics. It's yes. amazing. Oh. <laughs> well done, John. Yeah, and that's the verse. Everyone knows the refrain. Yeah, yeah, it's it's doing well. It's so (laughs) true. When is your? When are your shows? Your show to Madonna and your show to Cole Porter. When are they here in Los Angeles? Madonna is this coming Monday, Monday the um, the tenth, yes, and then uh, Cole is the following Tuesday the eighteenth. So I have a little week apart. Um, where I disappear to San Diego and Palm Desert, and then come back to Los Angeles. So, and are you are you performing in San Diego and in Palm Desert? I am. I'm doing Madonna and Cole Porter in bo- in all of those places because we we are broadcasting um, live in both of those places right now. So that's well, I'm bringing both Madonna and Cole Porter to um, Martini's above Fourth in San Diego, two shows a week apart, and then in Palm Desert at the McKellen Theater, both shows on the same day. Um, do you yes, do you I'm, have a website if people want to go and figure out what show is closest to them and where to see you? I, I do. Um, my website's Michael Griffiths, which is just my name, funnily enough, uh, .co. It's a no M on the end because someone else stole that before I got a chance <laughs> to. So michaelgriffiths.co, they're on there. Um, or, you know, you can just Google uh, the websites. Um, yeah, well, for Los Angeles, it's catalinajazz.com or... There's another place you can go. And I, All right, michaelgriffiths.co.co. Yeah, <laughs> .co, no M, because it's already used. <laughs> we will have right. Mate, I would love to meet you in person sometime. I, I love that I'd you love, love Cole too. Porter and Madonna. You, you and I share that in common. I, I love, uh, and I bet I would love to hear your music. I'm going to try to make it to the Cole Porter show and see you. Well, I hope you can, and come and say g'day, and we can reminisce. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> trade some Cole Porter stories, because there's more where that came from. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Michael, enjoy your stay in Vegas and we'll see you soon gang when we come back we'll be talking to Betsy Butler from the Women's Law Center about women's equality in 2020 here on Channel Q a little little church for you Betsy Butler I know it's been a long time since you've been in a church but that's old freedom by the golden gospel singers well it's also bright in here (laughs) gang we're talking to Betsy Butler former California State Assemblywoman now at the Women's Law Center and of course a dear friend of yours truly for I don't even know 40 years okay we're not that old yet I mean you are turning 60 soon we met in 85 no couldn't have been I was still in college it was 88 88 All right, 98 2000 Babe, that's 32 years. I know, I know. Okay. You're getting really old. I don't know about the rest of us. You're not, you're not. You still look as beautiful as the day I met you. you're very generous. (laughs) All right. We are going to talk about uh, women's equality, and that's Uh kind of one of the reasons I played that song. It's a 100-year anniversary Uh of women getting the right to vote. Yeah. And I thought, what better person to have in than the person at the Women's Law Center? You. Well, 
and the good thing is, you know, that women have no more thing, nothing more to worry about. Everything's taken care oh, of. Oh, it's We're all good. done. All right, oh, yeah, let's Got, go. Check We're that done. off. Sure. Check that off. Yeah. Women are equal, mm-hmm. especially <laughs> with this administration. You know, things are going so uh, well. Yeah, you know, when they give the Presidential Medal of Honor to Rush Limbaugh, it just tells you how good things are going. Oh my gosh, I couldn't okay. believe it. Okay. When it Can you? I mean, my father. Okay, my father was a Republican. He's no longer on this planet, but he was a grand, what they call a grand old party Republican. Right. So he was fiscally conservative, but right. very socially liberal. Yeah. And this was a man, I mean, I, have, I was born and raised in Sacramento. So unfortunately, I had the privilege <clears throat> of having Rush Limbaugh in my life much longer than the rest of you because he actually started in Sacramento, right? Oh. And so when I was in high school, I, this is before like radio or sound carrying through your house because again it was the 70s right and Rush Limbaugh my dad would have a radio on in every room of the house with Rush Limbaugh exactly so you never missed a word while he was doing his Saturday and Sunday chores right but my dad was such a decent human being that um, he passed away in 2011 but you know the notion the whole he was also in the in the Air Force, but the notion that McCain would be treated the way he was by oh. this president, that Rush Limbaugh and this whole party would get away with what's happening, I know he. There's just, my mom and I talk about it all the time. There's just no way he would be approving of what's happening in this country right Absolutely now. Not. Massive disrespect and lack of dignity, and just it's just. And every day it's something else. It's something else. But I mean, how do you explain Susan Collins, a senator from Maine, Republican? You know, she says that she's all there for pro-choice I, and women's equality, right. and then she votes for Brett Kavanaugh. Right. I say write a check to her opponent and fast. I mean, seriously, <laughs> yeah. let's get some of these people out. I mean, as much as the presidency is, you know, obviously a critical concern for us, the Senate is huge. We have five races. Really, that oh, I think we could maybe I think we can maybe turn at least two of them, maybe four. We need four. So right, right. where are those four? Got to hold Doug Jones in Alabama, hopefully. But that's tough, right? I mean, he's in a really deep red state. Yeah, I think he's a good and decent man. I hope he does win re-election. But he did beat out a child predator, <laughs> alleged child predator, last time around. But we have a predator in the White House. I so know. What is that Apparently, it doesn't seem to matter. No, and all of his predator friends. Yeah, I think it's possible to win Arizona. I think McSally will go down definitely. I Me think it's too. possible to win Colorado. Yeah. I think Cory Gardner will yeah. go down. I think it's possible when Maine, Susan Collins. I know. But like you said, we need one more, and that leaves Tillis in North Carolina, maybe. And um, uh, McGrath is running against um, the turtle. The yeah, turtle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> McConnell so, in Kentucky. Exactly. So I would love the turtle to go down. I'd love Lindsey Graham to go down in South Carolina. I'd, yeah. But I think I think those are more long shots. But but I mean we need four. We need well, four. Well, you know, the only way I'm the least but the reason I'm least but hopeful is because of the midterms. I mean mm. Yes. And you know what this dovetails into our conversation and I've known you long enough, you know, I've I've had the privilege of being John's friend for thirty some years and John was so generous and and put me on the board of Equality California and then put me on the board Babe, of the you Gay Men's served, Chorus of Los You Angeles. served for the LGBT community as a straight uh, ally. Right. You're, it's but you. I, but so I've had this front row seat to all the positive and negative things that have happened in this country. And really, it has been this period of time that I've been involved with the gay community up close and personal because of you mainly has been such a... a, a a fascinating it's been a privilege really mm, thank you. but but what's interesting is i think you might have remembered me saying this from the very beginning from when you got marriage to when you didn't get marriage and you got marriage again <laughs> this is very similar to the women's movement right mm. so we got choice okay mm-hmm. and we've had to fight for it every day since mm-hmm. and i'm hopeful that this generation particularly in this me too era 
this generation will see different outcomes and have different a different perspective and different challenges than what I've had to endure and what you've had to endure right, and right. people our age have had to endure with regard to discrimination and isolation and, and just, you know, but then you've got this president who's allowing people to be their worst selves. Yeah, so. and bringing out the worst in the nation. Yeah. I agree. I mean, Roe versus Wade became law of the land in 1973, uh-huh. protecting the right, right to choose. Right. It now seems like the, the Supreme Court's not going to completely overturn it, but death by a thousand cuts. Well, that's exactly. Uh, that's over exactly. and over, keep paring it back, paring it back, paring it back. Right. And that's, and that's you know, that's ex- at the California Women's Law Center, we've done a number of amicus briefs. Um, many states across the country are 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 just doing incredibly ridiculous bills. Mm. Um, You know, you have to bury the fetus. There's, I I believe it's Indiana where there's legislation, I think 16 men have signed onto this, that said, if you have an ectopic pregnancy, you have to put that um, embryo back into the uterus and save it. Otherwise, you've committed a murder. Oh my God! <clears throat> this isn't this doesn't Insane. even make any sense. No, right? So there's that kind of stuff going on in all these different states, and, and mostly yes. men, I assume, right? Oh, mostly yeah. men on these bills, right? Right, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and how, white ones. Yeah. I how does say. Indiana give us both Mike Pence and Pete Buttigieg? You know, talk well, about a contrast. Hope. Isn't there hope? <laughs> there is hope. There uh, is you know, hope. there's a there's a city called Hope. Um, but so yeah, so all those states are doing all these different. Um, piece of legislation to hopefully get to the Supreme Court, which has now happened. So we we will be hearing a case, and yeah, it will be death by de- right. a thousand cuts. Yeah. But that's what they've been trying to do for a long time, and with the wrong president and the wrong Supreme Court and the wrong um, Congress, these things happen in this country. And so my whole thing about to the young people is those of us, you who fought for a lot of the LGBTQ rights that young. LGBTQ people are now experiencing and women until this president I think everyone got really lackadaisical and Mm. really secure that this is just a country that those things will always have abortion will always have gay rights that those things just won't go away here. Well, guess what? It takes one Trump and it's all one up Trump in the air. And yeah. Mm-hmm. But I I'm hopeful like you say, twenty eighteen was proof to me that a lot of people center woke especially up. woke up and went, wait a minute, no, that's going too far to the right. 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 Gave a speaker Nancy Pelosi and right. I'm hoping now in twenty twenty, not only the White House but the Senate keep the House. That's how the Republicans will learn. Right. Yeah. Well and it's also um it's also one of those things that hopefully it's life changing. So, you know, my good friend Ricardo Lara, who's now our insurance commissioner, um, w- was in college when 187, Proposition 187, was happening. And so he was eh, kind of lackadaisical about voting until right. that happened. And then from then on, he will, you know, he was going to vote in every election. Everybody right. knew he was going to vote. Woke, it broke him up. That's right. And now he's our California State Insurance Commissioner. Right. But that I hope that young people, that the Trump thing, that could be the one good thing about the Trump yeah. thing, that he's woken people up and especially young people understand how important it is to vote. Coming up next, gang, when we come back, more with Betsy Butler about women politics and the upcoming elections here on Channel Q. You like that, Bets? That's for it's you, baby. Val- in the name Val- of love. Yeah, Valentine's Day is coming, so, you know. <laughs> you too. We were supposed to get married. Do you remember that? Yeah, but I turned out to be homosexual. Well, there's that. But then yeah. we were going to have a kid, remember? Yeah, and then I turned out to be HIV positive at the time. Yeah, that was the other deterrent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah everything we planned just seems I, to fall to pieces. I, I, well, no, not necessarily. Some things. <laughs> we still got a good friendship going. Yeah, that's right. Talking See? to Betsy Butler from the California mm-hmm. Women's Law Center. I say that right? CWLC? All right. That's right. right. You are going 
organization does a lot of work around sexual assault. I uh-huh. think the Brett Kavanaugh uh, Supreme Court <laughs> hearings really raised that issue to the front of people's minds. Right, what right. Can, what can you tell us? Well, so we do a lot of work uh, regarding sexual assault, domestic violence, gender discrimination, reproductive health. And the organization's been around for 30 years. So unfortunately, none of those items have been resolved. What? Really yet. What yeah. the heck have you yeah, people no. been doing over no. there? And in fact, it's actually um, gotten a lot worse, as you can imagine. Um, again, because of Trumpism. what's happening yeah. at, at the national level, and then that trickles down, yeah. So so the California Law Center last year, we authored six amicus briefs and um, on sexual assault alone. Um, but, but bringing it to the interests of, of your listeners, um, I just want to point out that um, the LGBTQ, that LGBTQ women experience sexual assault at the same or even higher rate as heterosexual women, but 44% of lesbians and 61% of bisexual women experience rape, physical violence, or stalking versus 35% of hetero, heterosexual women. So hmm. um, there's, and and then there's just so many parts that, you know, when, when you've sustained a lifetime of discrimination, all of that comes to this. So the health care that you get and the, and the um, psychological resources that are not available, all those things really also build into the trauma right. that this person has experienced. Right. Well, sexual assault really has more to do about power than, than it has to do about sex, right? It, I mean, it's usually yes. some guy is trying to assert authority or power over a person he considers to be less than Correct. himself. Correct. And that, that he can get away with it or that person can get away with it, right? right. And it marginalizes a person when Correct. they're treated that way. Correct. So I also want to point out, too, that the among the LGBTQ community, transgender people and bisexual women face the highest risk of sexual violence and over half um, will experience sexual violence in their lifetime and it often happens at a young age. Among bisexual women who are rape survivors, 48% report report the first incident between the ages of 11 and 17. That's so amazing to me. I mean, when you're 11, you should be thinking about Harry Potter or, you know, children's books, not... Well, we also at the Women's Law Center are looking at child marriage, which, you know, in child marriage, yeah. where? In Kentucky? Where sorry to the people of Louisville. But in, in a state called California. Really? Yeah. There is no minimum age. Well, there is. If you have a parent, one parent and a judge sign off on your marriage as a minor here in California, you can get married at literally any age. And that is true across the country for the most part. But is that a, like a bizarre practice in certain religious sects? <clears throat> or where, where does that, because I never hear about that. I mean, for a while it seemed like there were strange religious outliers that, yeah. that would happen. Yeah. there. Um, I'm actually doing an event uh, next month uh, on March 18th down in, Los, in um, Orange County on child marriage and we have four child marriage victims survivors who are going to be speaking and, and hearing their stories it's it's all over the place so one mother basically just got tired of her daughter and married her off to the 42 year old down the street yes there are religious aspects to some of this um, another, another. That's one. A couple. But wait, of the a forty-two-year-old, well, like a fifteen-year-old. Exactly. So it's basically mm. pedophilia plus statutory rape, right? So and that's, that's the way it is. And that's the way it is. Yeah, that's crazy. That, yeah. that, that, that's Jason using his yeah. voice voice box okay. over there. He's got All no right. voice today, but he's oh got the box. Oh my gosh! That's, <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's horrible. And so the you know the economic <clears throat> scenarios that that then transpire for those girls because ultimately they're going to go on to have numerous children more likely than not and how that impacts their lives well the history of marriage of course marriage at one time was about property wasn't about love 
right? It was about people trying to combine estates and people uh-huh. would marry people they didn't love or especially royalty when they were trying to amass more of a kingdom. Certain princes and princesses were expected to marry for money. And it wasn't, I mean, marrying for love is something a creation of the last hundred plus years, but not thousands of years. Yeah, but some of that still hasn't changed. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but, but at least we got love in the equation now, like you should marry the person you love. Well, there's a novel, a 20th century idea. Well, especially if it's your choice. So yeah. with child child marriage, it is not your choice. Generally. No, clearly. Clearly not. Yeah. So there's a number of organizations across the country that we're working to change it, and we've accomplished that in a few states, but <clears throat> not in California. So... We have work to do there. Um, we also did. <clears throat> excuse me, I have frogs in my throat. So does Jason. Of course, Uh-oh. his his took Uh-oh. root. He's did got no voice. Yeah. Um, we also authored nine separate briefs on domestic violence. Mm. So these are different cases happening across the country, but um, there's a lot of domestic violence among the LGBTQ community as well. Um, so. You know, we're, we're everyone unfortunately gets to deal with these levels of yeah. Violence. I think to some degree too. One of the things that's happened to LGBT people, it's now being more <clears throat> widely reported, and maybe that's the, part of the significant increase. For many decades, law enforcement would not take same gender complaints. Mm-hmm. Like if two guys who were lovers or partners were engaged in fighting, law enforcement would just write it off as boys being boys. Right. They wouldn't take it seriously. Right. Well, I think West Hollywood and is a great example of. I know you guys were training the sheriff's department a we lot. Have. Long time ago, yes, yeah. to take same like same gender right. complaints. Yeah, right. we yeah. have. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of that. You know, there's still a lot of edification that needs to happen with within law enforcement. They need to take responsibility yeah. for domestic violence for all of it. Yeah, it's. I mean, I've had, we've had people come to us, and I've had tapes of of um, police officers telling women who have called them to their home, which that's the other problem. It's a generally a man coming, but a man coming to. Here, um, take her her report for her rape, and they're like, "Are you sure you didn't just drink too much? And mm. This is, you know, are you sure it wasn't consensual? Because it kind of sounds like." And they're they're just like, "What are you talking about?" So, well, until what was it, nineteen seventy or eighty? A, a wife could not report a husband for domestic violence. It was not under California law possible, right, for a husband to commit sexual assault on a wife. Right. Uh, up well, until like 80, I think it was. Yeah, but do you remember too when Donald Trump was running for president? His lawyer said he. Because remember, he raped his his wife, the, right. the other one, Ivanka, whatever, right? Was that her name? <laughs> no, that's his daughter. But no, okay, sorry. What's, what, I don't remember. Anyway. Jason probably knows, but he's not talking, so yeah. yeah. What is uh, it? Ivana. Ivana, sorry. Ivana, so he, he raped her. Um, right. And, and his lawyer said, well, you can rape your wife. Do you remember that during uh, the election? I was like, no, you can't. You can't. You really can't. <laughs> like, what century are we in? Uh, yeah. Sometimes I wonder. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder. Well, they took us backwards. I mean, in so many <laughs> Well, directions. that is what reactionary politics does. I mean, right? I mean, the, in terms of the political spectrum, there's there, if you're in the center, you go, you lean to the left, you, you end up going, you know, uh, liberal and progressive. You lean to the right, you go conservative. You go ultra-right, it's reactionary, right. which is to try to turn time back to what it used to be it never works well it never works i had a conversation once one time um with someone who said oh well the the radicals on either side i go well there's there's kind of a difference you know my tree huggers aren't aren't right aren't shooting abortion doctors you know i mean like the other side is like so radical and so dangerous that then they got guns Lots of guns. <laughs> got, got some, lots and of guns. the one in the White House is making sure they get to keep them mm. and never wants to do anything about it. 
Coming up next, gang, when we come back, Jarrett Hill is going to be joining the conversation. We're going to have the three of us talking about elections and campaigns and where we are here on Channel Q. Miss Mahalia Jackson singing We Shall Overcome. Yes, Lord. Women We Shall Overcome. African American History Month, Black History Month this month. We Shall Overcome. LGBT people, we shall overcome. We shall all overcome. Ah, oh, I'm so ready to overcome Trumpism. That's right, baby. All right. Gang, we're in studio with Betsy Butler from the California Women's Law Center and Jared Hill, one yes. of my favorite people in town. Well, thank you. <laughs> yes. I'm light. I will turn red. So. <laughs> Jarrett, yes. you are covering the Iowa caucuses. You are covering New Hampshire tonight. Yeah, the debate. I, don't, I know. What is going on? I just got completely exasperated. I, I mean, what, are we going to have a Democratic nominee? Did, I mean, I, I, I thought be, Pete Buttigieg would do well in Iowa. I yeah. didn't think he'd win by a sliver. I mean, I'm happy he won. But... I mean, well, it depends on who you ask if he won, right? Like, ah, that's so true. Apparently, the Republic, I mean, excuse me, the Democrats are, are calling for a re-canvassing. Yeah, Tom, Tom Perez finally um, called for a re-canvassing. I'm as exhausted with Iowa as I could possibly be. <laughs> and what is with caucuses? Can we, like, abandon that? Why, what's the whole point? I feel like I feel like if there's anything good that will come from this, it will be the fact that this was probably the last time we will do an Iowa caucus and the last time we will do them first. Betsy, oh, did you ever go God. to Iowa caucuses? I mean, you were part of um, the various presidential campaigns. Uh, uh, no, I stayed in California, but, yeah. but I've been to Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to me, it's like Red Rover, Red Rover, come on over. You like stand with one group, and then if you decide you want to go from Buttigieg over to Sanders, you just yeah. run across was, the room. And it's a, I did what is the, this? I did find the pictures of the people who had been supporting Biden and it dwindled down to like five. Yeah. That was interesting to me. So uh, there's so much interesting to talk about when it comes to caucusing because like if, if, I mean, there's, a real argument to be made that Bernie Sanders won if we're looking at the first round, right? Because right. like people came in wanting to vote for him. And then by the end of it and averaging everything out, it seems like Pete Buttigieg may have won. But like if we were doing this weird thing that other states do called voting. Um, <laughs> one person, would, one ballot. Exactly. If we That's were doing novel. that, it would <laughs> yeah. be Bernie Sanders, right? And like I've said multiple times before, like I'm not a big Bernie fan, but like there's an argument to be made that Bernie Sanders seemingly won, won that situation. Um, but it's crazy to me that we still caucus. It's crazy to me that Iowa is still first. And I, I would know. imagine if they're going to figure out a way to do this better, that there will be multiple states that will go first in the future as opposed to dumping, spending a year, a year and a half for some people, right. dumping hundreds of millions of dollars into Iowa for it to turn out like this yeah. now three times in I, the last And the first decade. two states, Iowa and New Hampshire, are predominantly white. Uh, well, that's they my point, right? don't represent the rest of the country. They don't look like the country, and they certainly right. don't look like the Democratic Party, so no. it doesn't really do anyone a service. Like, yes, they have chosen the right person that ended up becoming the nominee four times. That's really cute. But, like, it also, it, it disproportionately puts value on the um, on the Iowa voter and, yeah. and, and Iowa as a as an electorate. You know, I know in the past that California and other states tried to move their primary up to get closer to Iowa, and every time the other states moved up, Iowa just pushed back further. Yeah. Like, they want to go first, no yeah. matter what. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, I, I was just going to say, as someone who's run for office, I can't imagine having a March primary and a November election. Like It's forever. Kill oh me God. now. Forever. Well, I, like, it, we have to find something in between what we do and what the British do, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. the British in their six-week turnaround, they're like, 
So we're doing an election in six weeks. Y'all figure out who wants to run, but we're doing this on Thursday. You know what I mean? So like, there's so many ways that we can improve uh, our voting here. Like, it doesn't make sense that we vote on a Tuesday, on one day, right? When we could put it on a weekend. It doesn't make sense that we have a year, two years of campaigning. It doesn't make sense that we primary in this way. Like, there's a lot of things that we could do to fix voting. But also, like, I I, I hate to say it sounds so cynical, but like, Voting is working the way that it's supposed to work, right? It's working the way that it was built. It, it Voting is not supposed to include everyone, because if it was, mm. it'd be a holiday. It'd be more open for people to like be able Australia. to participate. Exactly. Australia yeah. makes it a holiday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, California just went to 30 days of voting, right? Correct. There's no longer yeah. polling places. It's like 30 days. But I'm afraid people don't, don't know. know. Well, yeah. I, I, got a, I got my ballot uh, and like the booklet and all that kind of stuff in the mail this week. And I was like... Damn, isn't this election like not until March? And I, I, I double checked it this morning. Actually, I was like, I think this is next month. And I was like, yes, okay, right. it's March third. But uh, yes, I mean, I think it's good for people to be able to have more time because also a lot of people are not paying attention to this, right? right like right. politicos like us are are Live completely immersed. Yeah. Exactly, I've been immersed in this for a year, and there's some people who are not going to pay attention at Iowa, for instance. When that Iowa um, Des Moines Register uh, poll didn't come out, they talk about the importance of that poll being the fact that so many people are undecided and that is really demonstrated in caucusing because so many people come into the caucus unsure who they want to vote for and then if you're watching the coverage of it you'll hear someone say like they'll say oh I came over to Bernie from you know Amy Klobuchar or whoever and they're like oh well why did you come to Bernie well their people got to me first or their people were the loudest or they look like they had the best party has nothing to do to with do policy. With, yeah. Yeah, that's... Or, or there's the one woman, oh my God, I put it on my Facebook, the woman who had given the card or whatever for Pete. And she yeah. Was, Wait, he's gay? And I'm like, who who are these people? <laughs> that, well, and like, what's what? great about her, and like, she's a low information voter, right? Like, Clearly. Completely removing anything about her politics or whatever. She's a low information voter because yeah. she says, well, why didn't anyone say anything? And I was like, <laughs> is he hiding it? I'm I like, said, <laughs> sweetheart, that's the whole reason we're here. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, if Pete Buttigieg were not gay, he would not have entered <laughs> into the national. The National yeah, yeah. scene. Yeah, so, yeah. my God. It was wild to me. That is wild. Yeah. And mortifying. So, I think Bernie's going to win New Hampshire. And then we go to South Carolina. Now, South Carolina, the Democratic Party, is predominantly African American. Biden, for all purposes, Sweetie, seems Pete Buttigieg to be holding ain't it. South Carolina. I can tell no. you that. Yeah, right Pete now. Buttigieg is not winning South Carolina. But do you think Biden's going to hold South Carolina? Where well, else does a black vote go in South Carolina? Well, so this whole Iowa debacle has has hurt Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg. But if it has helped anyone, it has been Joe Biden hmm. because Joe Biden came in as the great white hope of America. Yep. That he was the person that white white uh, uh, moderates could vote for over By Donald 30 Trump. Points. Exactly. Um, but like. We have been saying for months, like, Joe Biden is not an amazing candidate, right? I said to you on this show before, like, I cannot name one person that I know that is, like, thrilled for President Biden, that is excited to go vote for him. However, the way that this week has worked out, right, the caucus was on Monday. There was no result. Tuesday was the State of the Union. Mm. Wednesday was the acquittal of the president. What a hell of a week. Thursday, there was still half results, right? We kind of got results. And then they came back and said, we're going to re-canvas. So it has helped Joe Biden to not have a decisive loss just yet. And that could help him in New Hampshire. It could help him in Nevada, South Carolina. But this this whole week of Iowa has completely thrown everything out the window. New Hampshire seemingly becomes the start of the primary again. Mm. 
You know, which I, is also exhausting as I even say that. I, yeah. I have to say, okay, I got my ballot too. Yeah, I, I have not returned it because I don't know who I'm voting for. I I, I was a Kamala Harris guy, mm-hmm. and I still haven't decided who I'd support for president. I'm I'm kind of in that same boat. I feel like I kind of know who I want to vote for. Okay, you're leaning you Elizabeth, kinda. right? I, well, I've been leaning toward Warren, um, but I. I'm just not like, I like her a lot, don't get me wrong. Um, I've had a lot of challenges with Bernie Sanders. I find him frustrating, but like policy-wise, sure, girl, okay. But like <laughs> him and the people that come along with him feel very analogous to the Trump supporter on the other side. Uh, absolutely. Uh, From it's, them, yep. it's exhausting. Who are you agree. with, Betsy? Are you, have you decided? Well, you know, I've been on a couple of different trains, but right now I'm on the Amy train. I like Klobuchar. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And but, here's why. I mean, I... Well, hold on. We actually have to go for... Oh. See, when we come... Coming up next, okay. we'll hear Betsy's reason okay. why she's with the Amy Klobuchar. <laughs> Stay tuned, gang, so you can hear here on Channel Q. That is the incredible Lauren Hill singing Black Rage. I played that for you, baby. Played that for you, Jarrett. I um, it's funny. I have a very mixed uh, relationship with that album. I love that album. I well because I loved her first album yeah. so much, and then she came out and did this unplugged album. We're like, what the hell songs are these? What, what is this? <laughs> um, but it's it's yeah, obviously and uh, it's aged well, and people like it a lot more. Yeah, than I like it. Gang, we're talking to Jared Hill in studio and Betsy Butler from California Women's Law Center. And you were about to justify Amy Klobuchar, and Amy. during the break, we went from Amy Klobuchar oh. all the way to Jeffrey Epstein well, in four minutes. Let me tell if that you. wasn't a podcast. <laughs> extra for you. <laughs> well, no, I, I was just saying that as, although we live in the beautiful bubble that is California, mm. it isn't the rest of the country. And so as much as we want someone very progressive and liberal to represent us, if you're Cal- most Californians, um, you know, when you look at who's been elected as president, you know, Bill Clinton was not a progressive. And you worked in the Clinton White House. I did. And I, I got arrested in front of the Clinton oh White God, House while you were inside. <laughs> this is a story. And he still doesn't recall when that he said the, to me. She was, she was in was the Commerce. Department of Commerce yeah. in the what, Clinton what White years? House. Ron Brown, 93 to 96. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I'm good friends with Keith Boykin, who was in oh, the Clinton yeah. White House. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I went to Commerce because of Ron Brown. He, was, he got Bill Clinton elected. I was on those calls every Saturday morning. Yeah. But anyway, so I, I just um, I know, I, I just don't know. I love Elizabeth. She's great. I just don't know that this country as a whole would vote for her. Of course, it depends upon who's going to be president and who the VP is. I think Amy would make a great VP. Um, well, I, if we I, do this right one year from today... Donald Trump would not be president of the United States. One year from today, uh, there'd be a new president assembling a new administration. Well, it'd be less than one year from today. Yeah. yeah January yeah. 20th would I, be the inauguration. I so, just hope we all survive between now and then. Girl, listen. <laughs> I just hope I can get through the weekend at I'm this point. You know what I mean? Like, you. it's one step at a time. I, but the, the thing about Amy Klobuchar is I don't think there's anything, like, bad about Amy Klobuchar. And, like, if she were the nominee, I'd happily vote for her. But I don't see her sparking enough enthusiasm to mm-hmm. get people out to vote for her. Okay. Well, just remember, Bill Clinton didn't win a primary or a caucus or anything to like March or April. He didn't come in first for Completely. a long, long time. So someone, I'm just saying, whoever's the front runner now isn't going to be it. I, I totally get that and agree with you. Um, I think, but like, there's a charisma about Correct. Bill Clinton that people have always like, mm-hmm. and I don't have to explain that to you at all, right? right? Um, my favorite Bill Clinton story is having been at the Clinton Global Initiative, uh, the university version that they had, and like seeing him across the room and like people are losing their minds and yeah. like, oh my God, and it was like he was like on the complete other side of like moving toward all of us to shake our hands and I was like 
I mean, it's Bill Clinton, you guys. Calm down. I mean, I get it. But And then like he got a little closer, and I was like... I get it. I mean, it's Bill Clinton, yeah. sure. And then he got a little closer, and I was like, that is Bill Clinton. And then like by the time he was there, he was like, oh my God, Mr. Clinton! Like, I was so excited. Right. But you- there's a charisma about him that, like, that happens when you're in that space with him and you listen to him speak. But right. like Amy Klobuchar has always just felt so flat. Right. Well, two things on that. First of all, I I did Bill Clinton's campaign in Southern California, and that whole, you know, atmosphere that you're referring to was why he was four hours late to every event. I believe it. He would not leave a room until every single... And it was way before selfies, by the way. But to that end, (laughs) that is Elizabeth Warren. Like, right? You know what I mean? Like, everyone Mm. wants to take a selfie with Elizabeth Warren. And Pete. And, well, Pete, too. But, like, if Pete becomes the nominee, the Democrats have a big problem. Yeah. Because, like, I mean, I like Pete Buttigieg. Bernie I'm not excited about nominee, him. We got a big problem. Either too. one of them. Yeah, yeah there's like, there are major challenges that come along with either one of them as a candidate. Oh, Again, God. would vote for either one of them. But, like, yeah. the populace, like the right. electorate, there's a lot of challenges with both of them. Well, that's exactly, you know, I walked for Hillary Clinton in Cleveland, Ohio, the, the, last, the last weekend of October. And I would go up to doorsteps, you know, women answer the door, and I said, okay, and they're Democrats. Okay, you're all set, ready to vote. Yeah. You know where to go? And they're like, oh, I won't vote for a woman for president. Okay, this is Cleveland, Ohio in 2016. Yeah. Three of them to my face. Crazy. It's <laughs> wow, crazy to that me. that is crazy. <laughs> well, and like, yeah. I think about Pete Buttigieg and I think like, okay, if he becomes the nominee, how long until there's some illicit sex scandal that comes out, right? That he and his... Well, gang, has- I hate to break it to you, but Pete and I... No. <laughs> and I mean, none of us would be surprised. Let's I was going to say, like, I've actually... There's, there's already conversation about... The relationships that people to judge may have had, right? Yeah. He's a thirty-eight-year-old man or something like that. Like he's had relationships and relations outside of his husband, right? Right. And so, like, at what point is there like some crazy sex scandal, right. whether it's true or not? Well, I and mean, Donald Trump's got crazy sex scandals all yes, around. Yes, but Pete Buttigieg is a gay man, and you know, like, uh, there's a thing about a different being, standard. Maybe, exactly, there's a standard. thing about being gay that I don't think straight people tend to think about so much. Is like when you when you identify someone as gay, like you immediately are talking about that person's sex life, as opposed to like knowing that a per- assuming that a person is straight and whatever but you never really have a conversation about their sex life unless it comes up right mm-hmm. but me walking into the room as a gay man you immediately know oh he sleeps with men or if I say I'm queer oh he sleeps you know with whomever you know like queer is like such an umbrella term but with Pete Buttigieg coming in as a gay candidate you're immediately thinking about his sex yeah. and who he's sleeping with who he's married to who he loves you know who's the parent to his kid that kind yeah, of thing yeah. in a way that you don't with straight people yeah. you know there was some uh, study that brought out a difference between lesbian candidates and gay men gay men suffer from what you described Jared lesbians do not you they know do why not, and they haven't for a long time yeah. because lesbians have an access to patriarchy that gay men it, it's a very different relationship with that patriarchy well, because also, straight men look at them as one of us kind of mm, in, the same, in a similar way well and also a lot of men are curious that wouldn't mind watching two women have sex exactly in fact I remember when I was working for Jerry Shipsky down in Long Beach yeah. and Rick Zaburr had just run for Congress there and they'd done all this polling that said a gay man can't win but a gay woman can because people down in Long Beach don't I mean yeah, it was yeah. fascinating Wait, this was a long time Sheila ago Sheila Kuhl and I ran for assembly in 92 they had did a survey USC with yeah. Sheila it was pixie delightful cute with John Duran it was predator <laughs> all this like sexually laden stuff just because I was a man and she but was like, a woman yeah. there's a real dichotomy of like the butch lesbian if you will right and yeah. like the flaming homosexual man yeah. like they are the, the two extremes but like with the butch lesbian they are seen by the other guys as 
like one of the guys. We're going to have beer. We're going to go out and watch football and all that kind of stuff. You're kind of like one of us. And they feel comfortable with that. But with like the, the flaming homosexual, it's like I can't relate to that at all because it's also associated with with uh, with femininity. And that's just not comfortable for for people. Our time has expired, gang. Oh. I want to thank you, Jared, for coming by. Of course. Chatting. Betsy, thank you for coming back. Thank you. you got to wrap. Oh, okay. to see you. Gang, next Friday is Valentine's Day. We'll be having a big Valentine's Day show all about love, sex, and relations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> see you next week here on Channel Q.